Hi, I'm Josh Corman. I'm the founder of IamTheCavalry.org, was the chief strategist for the CISA COVID task force during the pandemic, and am a head of cyber safety strategy for Clarity. And you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today we have episode 302 for December 12th, 2022. And I've got a really, really good interview for you today. We're going to be talking with Josh Corman, and he has done many, many things. But the thing that brought me to him was a, a group called I Am The Cavalry. And this is an organization that he helped start several years back now. And the idea being that the cavalry is not coming, so therefore it needs to be you. In the sense of we have a lot of cybersecurity problems that need to be fixed, and we can't just rely on someone else to get these things done. And you don't have to be in a high-tech position to do this. There's a lot of things that all of us could do. But anyway, he has worked for the U.S. government. He has worked in a lot of organizations and has done some amazing, amazing things. And it's a very sobering and philosophical discussion, and I really, really enjoyed it. I've been trying to get Josh on the show for a long time. But he's a very, very busy person, as you will soon see. And we just had a really great discussion. I think you're going to find this inspiring. I know I did. Uh, okay, before we get started, a, a couple things. First of all, the big giveaway is still going on. You've got time to enter the raffle, and you, you can enter multiple ways and multiple times. To get the information, go to FDSD, that's Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, FDSD.me, FDSD.me slash EP300 as in episode 300. I kicked it off a couple weeks ago with the big uh, 300th episode, so we're kind of celebrating that. I'm giving away almost $2,000 worth of stuff to five winners, one grand prize winner and four regular winners. Uh, you can get all the details by going to that link. And that giveaway will run through the end of the month, through December till basically New Year's Eve, uh, Eastern time. And also during the month of December, I've got a big patron promotion going on as well. This is for new and existing patrons. Uh, if you sign up for an annual membership, you got to sign up for a full year. But if you sign up for an annual membership at the right level, you will qualify for one of my super cool security enhancing Dragon Challenge Coin swag packs. That includes one of my really cool Dragon Challenge coins that also act as a D20 die. So you can use that coin to generate passphrases uh, from my website, d20key.com, and some other cool swag stuff as well. So for that one, go to fdsd.me slash coin promo, C-O-I-N-P-R-O-M-O. And all the details will be there. Now, if you're still looking for some holiday gifts and you want to make sure that something you give is going to be secure and private, I have my annual best and worst gift guide. You can go to the Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons website. It'll be one of my recent articles there. Uh, I've also decided that this year I wanted to create something. I wanted to make something that you guys could give away to your loved ones to help them improve their security and privacy. So I created a bunch of coupons that you can hand out. You know, these are for things like setting up a password manager or setting up two-factor authentication or, you know, improving the security of a home network, that kind of stuff. So uh, check that out. It's on my best and worst gift guide. Again, just go to my website. You'll find that and you'll find a link to these downloadable free PDF coupons you can give out. Little stocking stuffers. And by the way, you don't have to do this for the holidays. There's nothing on them that says, you know, that it's a holiday thing. But if this is a great time to do that, uh, but you can do it all year round as well. I am adding some more coupons. So there will be a V2, a version two of that PDF file. So be on the lookout for that. 
And then finally, as always, I'm collecting questions for the Dear Carrie segment of the news shows. So send me your questions and I will answer them on the air. And again, go to fdsd.me slash Q&A for all the details about how to go about doing that. Okay, so let's talk about today's interview. Again, this is really pretty sobering. It's a very serious conversation about cybersecurity and not just about ransomware and how people might lose some money or you might have to buy a new computer or no identity theft. Those are all bad things. Those are all things that are not fun to deal with. But Josh is really focused on where cybersecurity failures cause harm, like direct harm to people or death in some cases. He was working at CISA during the pandemic, for example, when the hospitals were already overcrowded. And so anything that might cause a delay in care, or if the hospitals were too full and you had to go to a different hospital, or, you know, there was some sort of a malware attack at the hospital that caused some of the key services to go down, but also things like colonial pipeline, you know, where people lost the ability to get gas, the hacks that caused problem with the, the, the meat packing industry, the hack that potentially could have caused horrible poisons to be put in the water supply. These are the kind of things that are very possible now and they're starting to happen. And so he's very focused on the very ultra practical ways that we can improve our security. A couple things he mentions that I want to uh, give you a little briefing on before we get into it. So you know what he's talking about. He talks about Jeff Moss. I've interviewed Jeff Moss. He's the founder of DEF CON. Their whole I am the cavalry thing kind of get kicked off in DEF CON 21. There's a link in the show notes to that video that I encourage you to watch. My interview with Jeff Moss was also a lot of fun. If you want to go back and check that out, there's also a link in the show notes for that. He also whips out a phrase called uh, left of boom. And you may not be familiar with this. this. There's a whole shift left movement in software development and in other areas as well. But the idea being, if you're looking at a timeline, so that left is earlier in time and to, toward the right is later in time. Ideally, when you're trying to fix problems and prevent things from happening, you want to shift left. You want to get them fixed earlier in the process because the, the later you catch something, that is bad or needs fixing, the more expensive it is to fix because you basically got to go back and repeat a lot of things you've already done. So shift left is sort of an optimization thing. It's sort of a privacy or security by design thing. But when we're talking about left of boom, in that case, the boom is something bad, something really bad happens. So you want to be operating as much as possible to the left of the boom earlier than the boom. That is, you want to be working on preventative stuff or at least be prepared for when the bad things happen. So when it does happen, you can, you know, maybe mitigate the damage or if you've done a really good job, maybe prevent it and sidestep it completely. So when he mentions left of boom, that that's what he's talking about. These are preventative and proactive measures that you can take, you know, to prevent or limit harmful consequences. He also talks about SBOM or Software Bill of Materials. I uh, actually interviewed Alan Friedman a couple of years ago on this concept. It was, I think it's extremely important. It's a, I think it's a great idea. Basically, it's kind of a list of ingredients for your software. And that's really important because software today is really a patchwork quilt of libraries, what we call software libraries and software development kits. And they come from all over the place. Some of them are open source, some of them are not. But your software applications that you run today are really a piecemeal, kind of a Frankenstein of other people's software. And as I'm fond of saying, all software has bugs. And therefore, the more pieces of software you have, the more potential chinks you have in your armor. And so it's important to know what your software is made of so that if one of those piece parts has a known vulnerability, you know that that is in your software and you know that you need to update that. He also talks about Maslow's pyramid or hierarchy of needs. Maslow is an American psychologist who came up with this idea of a kind of a, 
you're used to the food pyramid, but this was a needs pyramid, like in, kind of in, in order of the things that we as humans, uh, or maybe even as a society need to figure out first. For example, it's a pyramid. So at the very bottom, the thing that we absolutely cannot live without literally are physiological needs. We need air, we need food, we need water, we need shelter, we need sleep, those sorts of things. And then above that is, you know, safety. We want the subsecurity, maybe employment, you know, for financial security. We have certain resources, our health. And then above that is love and belonging. Above that is esteem. And then finally, at the very tippy tippy top is self-actualization. So he likens a lot of the things that we need to do in cybersecurity to kind of, you know, looking at this pyramid of needs, like getting the very basic stuff from that first and make sure we focus on that stuff. All right. I don't want to waste any more time. Let's get to our interview with Josh Corman. Josh Corman is VP of Cyber Safety at Clarity, founder of I Am The Cavalry, and formerly served as the chief strategist for CISA, CISA, regarding COVID, healthcare, and public safety. He previously served as CSO of PTC, director of Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council, CTO for Sonotype, as many, many other senior roles. Josh, it's been a long time coming. I'm so glad to finally have you on the show. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for your patience as life <laughs> threw us curveballs. <laughs> Yes, and congrats on the wedding and all that stuff. That's fantastic. I'm happy to have been delayed by such a wondrous event. Yes, it was a wonderful (laughs) hacker reunion as well. All right. So uh, despite your new gig, actually, what I'd love to talk to you about today is your role with I Am The Cavalry. I think that's really cool. And I want to kind of explore that group and the kind of things you've done. So to start off, why don't you tell us a little bit about I Am The Cavalry, you know, how it evolved, you know, over the last seven to eight years. Nine now. Uh, mm. We turned nine in, on August first. My origin story changes depending on my mood. I mean, it's the same story. It's just how much verbosity and how personal I get. But I do like your longer format. I was. I'm a philosopher hacker. I just always want to be a superhero, but I didn't look good in tights, and I certainly wasn't <laughs> a technically prowess uh, hacker. But I care a lot about you know protecting people and good versus evil and hard problems. And it turns out. My otherwise useless philosophy degree turned out to be incredibly valuable during, you know, as the the world and society and the species grew more dependent on connected technology, technology starts to really affect public safety, human life, social contracts, social stability. So when I saw the rise of anonymous and hacktivism, I started taking more risks and I realized that my social contract theory was quite, quite relevant. And Mm -hmm. I was advising UN and NATO and others on this new emergent property of the internet. And I was very worried it was going to lead to things like cyber terrorism, and it ultimately did. If you want to circle back to that, it's pretty yeah. scary what happened. But um, I got as high and deep as you can get in the federal government. I got permission to bring five world-class hackers with me to spend two days at Fort Meade with General Alexander and his uh, his five top people. And we had to answer some real big challenge questions. This was There was a House bill and a Senate bill. They were trying to decide how to regulate cyber. And after you know, we did two incredibly intense days... And there's a personal part of the story and there's a factual part of the story. But the factual part was at the end of two days, they couldn't act on a single one of our great ideas from our single challenge question, not even one. Hmm. And these world-class hackers and I were at the bar kind of licking our wounds and no one was speaking. And I just kind of uttered reflexively, hey, guys, the cavalry isn't coming. Hmm. No one's going to save us. And uh, the personal bit of this is that between night one and two, I had to leave quickly to go to my car and do some guest lecturing at George Washington 
And I got back to several voicemails to find out a bunch of people saying, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Josh. I'm so sorry. I'm like, what the hell are they talking about? And eventually I got to one of my sisters and it turned out my mom's stroke was actually the front wave of pretty aggressive brain cancer. Mm. So I didn't tell the team what I was going through. We just muscled through. But as we hospiced her over the next several months, um, the last time she was going to go see her church and say goodbye to her friends was the Sandy Hook shooting. (laughs) And instead of saying goodbye to her friends... She, we got lectured to for two hours about why is there evil in the world? Why is there evil? And never answering the question. And I just remember being scared for my little girls who are scared that they're losing to go to school, who are scared that they're losing their grandma and everyone's crying and everyone's shattered. And I just remember being mad. And, um, you know, a couple months later, she, she passes, we go back to that same church for the first time since then. And I was angry again. You don't want to be angry at your mom's funeral. So I sat in the car for a long time and I didn't want to go in. I was listening to some tool. And uh, when I finally went in, I had to metabolize that anger. And as I tried to find some positive spin, I said, you know, last time we were here, as I gave my remarks, I said, I was angry because it was standing the hook and we were overwhelmed. We we're confused. And I didn't like the question of why is there evil in the world? It couldn't put my finger on it, but I just did. My mom got to be my seventh grade science teacher. She didn't even have a teaching degree at the time. She was going to school to be a teacher and she had to fill in for somebody. She was an amazing teacher. And of many things we learned from her is that darkness wasn't a thing. It was an absence of light Mm. and that cold isn't a thing. It's an absence of heat. Mm. So I said, maybe it's not just the presence of evil, but the absence of good. And if something's missing, we got to put it there. So I said, what's the absence of Marie, my mom's name? I didn't even have an answer, but. I just was speaking from the heart and something came to me. I'm like, well, we don't get to find out because now it falls to us to do what she was doing. As soon as I said that, I'm like, I kind of know what I have to do. Time's precious. You know, an average lifespan is not a guaranteed minimum lifespan and what matters and what doesn't. So I kind of, in my mourning process built up in my raw shattered empathy state where I'm just raw feelings every day. I kind of said, you know what? I'm going to stop being an imposter syndrome and pulling my punches. It's like, no one's going to fix these things. I'm really worried about them. So let me see if I can ask the hacker community, what are you willing and able to do? So at DEF CON that year, we said, hey, cavalry isn't coming. What can we do? And we said, let's be a voice of reason, a helping hand, wherever bits and bites are fle- meat, flesh, and blood. Initially, we had like 50 people. And then Jeff Moss gave us the, this is at B-Sides, yeah, Las Vegas. Jeff Moss ended up giving us the main stage Saturday or Sunday morning as mm-hmm. well. So we did the talk again to full the full room and i think it's still one of the top 10 defcon talks each year they list out but yeah we were just kind of saying you know we're ahead of society and culture in a lot of ways you know we're we're a bunch of misfits and we like our you know being puzzlers and protectors Mm -hmm. and prestige and profit and protest but we're increased as the world increasingly depends on technology they increasingly depend on us so i just said if you're willing and able let's meet at DerbyCon, form our wants, needs, fears, and our constitutional Congress of the sorts. And at this point, we have several th- you know, thousand volunteers, some hackers, some nurses and doctors, some public policymakers, some think tank people. But it's a coalition of willing that just says medical auto, high-speed rail, aviation, maritime, public utilities, power, electric, gas, these things are hackable. And uh, you haven't asked this yet, but during my I guess I'll just punctuate that that was nine years ago and we were trying to be left a boom and warn people. And we said, no one will listen until 
there's loss of life. Well, during my emergency federal service, we've, we saw the first loss of life from ransom attacks, protracted outages. And I got to publish that with data science during my federal service. And in parallel, while we were living out the cavalry mission with a couple of us actually as emergency hires temporarily in CISA, zoom out and think of Maslow's hierarchy needs, food, water, shelter, safety. We had successful attacks on the water we drink, Mm -hmm. the food we put Mm -hmm. on our table, oil and gas pipelines Mm -hmm. for the Eastern seaboard for to fuel our cars, our homes and our supply chains, the schools your kids go to municipalities, your own towns and cities, the federal agencies charged with national security and even timely access to patient care during a once in a hundred year pandemic with lethal outcomes. Shit's on fire. And, uh, you know, the things we were warning about the manifest harm, right. They were, we were always kind of vulnerable, but as you add more connectivity, you're increasing your exposure. The adversaries have become more brazen and willing to attack what was previous off limits and critical infrastructure. Yeah. The impacts are higher now. They're not record count or money. It's lost life or patient care outcomes or no fuel. Imagine if that colonial pipeline happened in the winter and we yeah, can get right. heat oil. So I think we're, we went on the right path. The question is, um, do we have the political will and stomach to make the necessary changes? So, yeah, you guys, unlike, I mean, a lot of times when we talk about this, and I, I, I do this as well, when I talk about things that happen in the news that are cybersecurity related, we focus a lot on the money. We fo- focus a lot on, you know, commercial impacts, ransom paid and, yeah. uh, you know, cryptocurrency scams and things like that. You guys are much more focused on actual physical harm. How, how does that focus change your overall philosophy? How does that change your approach to cybersecurity? Well, I mean, I, th- I think you hear this cliche a lot, but I think we really mean it. Cybersecurity, you know, is not an end unto itself, right? I mean, th- the term resilience is battered around a lot, but people don't really even know what it means or define it similarly. But what we really want is consistent, maintainable, resilient performance so that when you turn your water faucet on, you have clean, drinkable water. When you turn the light switch on, all the power comes on. When you drive a car, you're not worried that somebody can like, you know, turn the steering wheel hard to the right or kill the brakes, right? When you depend on medical technology to scale the the patient to nurse ratio in a hospital, you want that force multiplier to stay intact so that you can have your full caring capacity and safely care for patients. So what we really want is we, we trust these technologies and these services. We want to make sure that trust is well-placed. I think for us, sometimes the answer is you add more cybersecurity after the market, aftermarket, but rarely, mostly, as many of us that have been doing this long enough, what we realize is sometimes the best way to improve security is to reduce complexity. Mm-hmm. It's to reduce, it's not to add more stuff, it's to remove stuff. It's not right. so much to defend 15 internet facing attack surfaces it's to have you know fewer attack ser- it's re- attack service reduction it's not about defending undefense indefensible things that are unsupported with hard coded passwords it's understanding which things are unsafe at any speed and replacing them with more modern defensible IT and so i think a lot of what i teach for my cmu course and a lot of the appsec and productsec stuff i've done rugged devops and devsecops early work was Cybersecurity is like the third or fourth wave of having defensible, maintainable, reliable infrastructure. So this critical infrastructure, you can have alternatives as well. So sometimes it's not defending this particular IT, it's having a backup alternative Mm -hmm. supply. Mm -hmm. During the vaccine supply chain work, I couldn't necessarily prevent attacks against some of these rare manufacturers of 
critical ingredients for DNA and mRNA vaccines. The, the, the right cybersecurity strategy wasn't cybersecurity. It was, we need to have an alternative manufacturing site in case right. this one goes down. Right. So sometimes it's a, it's, it's part of your overall risk program, which is the cliche. It's part of your overall resilience strategy, which is often misattributed. And it's, it's usually about making sure that your dependence on a thing is proportional to how dependable it is. Yeah. So when these things are hackable, you should have appropriate expectations and backups. And when they're, when the cost of wrong or the cost of failure is too high, then you should probably shouldn't connect it to the internet. It's not a right to be connected, to have cyber physical systems on the internet with FTP or hard-coded passwords or no-factor authentication. Uh, forget <laughs> right, multi-factor right. authentication. So I just think I've always brought that mindset. And as we had a lot of the people who opted into this work in these critical infrastructure areas, and they know their constraints. I just think we have a pragmatism where we don't focus on activities and inputs. We focus on outcomes. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and you guys are, I, I noticed in a lot of the talks and things that I've, that I've seen you do, you focus a lot on empathy and you focus a lot on what you call meeting people where they are. Yes. Tell me what that means to you and how that plays out and what you guys do. Well, I would say that uh, generally the talent pool and demographic that was attracted to hacking did not have a lot of empathy organically or natively. And that includes me. In fact, I'm probably butchering some of these terms, but I found when I was emotionally shattered in the death process and afterwards for my mom, I initially looked at it as weakness. Like I can't wait till I'm less of a mess. But what I observed as I was coming out of the fog, I, I likened it to being in a boxing fight or having a grenade go off near you where I was just shell shocked and I, mm. you know, my sight was blurred and my mm -hmm. hearing was blurred and, but your senses slowly come back to you. And what I realized in the middle of that was, wait, this isn't weakness. I'm having truly authentic human connection with people. Like we're past the superficial, we're talking in a real way. There's a certain nakedness to it, but that engenders reciprocity. And I kind of chose, I'm going to hold on to this as long as I can, because these are better conversations and these are, we're really getting to the substance past the surface. I didn't know if it would work. And there's lots of reasons if you want to double click as to, I, I study this a lot and learn where does empathy get developed and it's a muscle you can develop. We just, mm. most of us didn't develop it. <laughs> And I said, you can keep being a pointing finger at past failures and say, everything's broken and fail whale, or we could try to be a helping hand for future success. Like we, we can look at what's wrong with something that's easy, or we can look at what's right with it and treat it like a little spark or an ember and foster it into a flame. And, and we're going to win more friends with, um, you know, common ground than we are going to be with criticism. And, and I would see really talented hackers find a medical device flaw and be really upset that no one was fixing it and they weren't being heard. And I said, let's try something new. So we meet people where they are. We use their love language. We tried a bunch of different ways to speak and learn, listen to the nouns and verbs they used. And when we built trust and built empathy, then we could ask for things and then we could be heard. People don't listen until they're first listened to. Mm -hmm. So maybe I had to be emotionally shattered to try this, but I think we found the more empathetic subgroups. And when people saw our successes, the more angry finger pointy people said, hell, let's try their method. And some of those people who found the flaws I could never find, you know, I helped them get turned into re the first ever recalls, you know, for regulated devices before anyone got hurt. And since we do deep down want to be problem solvers, we looked at this less as how do I find a device and break a device and report the break of the device and more about 
how do we not just hack and fix a single flaw in a single medical device from a single medical device maker, but how do you hack the, the law? How do you hack public policy so that you protect all devices? Right. And boy, when it started working, there's nothing more contagious than success. And a lot of our critics turned into teammates. So another phrase that you uh, have used quite a bit is uh, target rich and cyber poor. Mm. Um, mm. A lot of these organizations and, and and groups that you're working with are ripe targets for attack and yet have very little skills or budget or personnel or however you want to look at it to, to attack these things. So when you run into groups like that, what are your, what are your go-to recommendations? How do you start with, with groups that have so, so far to go? Well, let me constrain my answer to the last intense couple of years of the pandemic because the cavalry's met people where they are since day one, but we didn't use this phrase until somewhat recently. In fact, I use it in CISA because I'm very fond of giving credit where credit's due. This is a permutation of the wisdom from Wendy Nather when she worked for me at the 451 group and then eventually took over. She has this great phrase of the security poverty line and living below the security poverty line. So the notion that not everyone has the resources to do what they need to do or that what they should do, you know, that's all credit to her. In the context of the federal government and the federal language, uh, initially I went in to protect the 7,000 hospitals that deliver patient care in the country from record high ransomware during record high patient loads. Mm-hmm. And what I warned Chris Krebs, Director Krebs at the time when he was hiring me, they said 85% of the, the hospitals in the country don't have a single security person on staff based on our task force report. Wow. Like you can't just tell them to do zero trust or best <laughs> right. practices. It's not right. going to work. Right. So we have to be very pragmatic yeah. and I hope you're willing and able to be nimble if I'm going to come in. What I didn't know is in parallel with onboarding us, that's when Operation Warp Speed was set up to you know, to accelerate the development and distribution of vaccines, diagnostics, therapeutics, and medical equipment, you know, to save as many lives as possible. And those supply chains also, other than the very big players that have, you know, hundreds of people on our risk management teams, you know, for the pharmaceutical primes, the subprimes and all their downstream supply chains were teeny tiny and no security programs. So what they both had in common is they were target rich in that they were very attractive to adversaries for some reason, either because they knew hospitals would pay during a pandemic or because yeah. they knew that this was important to vaccine supply chains. Right. Target rich just meant how attractive are you to the bad guys and resource poor. The long version is they, you could be resource poor or cyber poor for one of the following three things, one or more. You could either be information poor and that you just didn't know. Uh, You could be incentives poor and that you knew better, but that there were insufficient carrots and sticks to make you do the right thing for national security, for public safety. I'm sure you can think of a few of those right now. Mm -hmm. And the last one was, was the most common, which is resource poor. They just didn't have a single security person. When I was handed a list of a thousand suppliers to the seven prime candidates for Operation Warp Speed to save millions of people. We ended up making a a list of 4,000, not one, but out of those 4,000, we found 66 that we called ball bearings, the the small unguarded weak links in the supply chain that if disrupted would have the most profound impact Mm. on loss of life. And the top of my list by far, I'm not going to tell you the name, but they were critical path to all the DNA and MRNA candidates. They were the only manufacturer in the world. (laughs) They had one site. And when we finally met them after a long period of trying to find them to help them and buy down risk. They had three IT people. None of them were cybersecurity people. You could have sneezed on them. They were all <laughs> over Shodan. They were all... Oh, geez. No hacking required. Just log in or just shut stuff off or do denial of service tech. 
And I was, you know, we, we lost sleep. We were just like, there's no way we can do a, a year long, three year long project to harden their network. So to answer your question of what do you do, it really depends on what your time horizon is and how pragmatic and gritty you want to get. But we developed at least a pragmatic security suite, we called it. But a couple of things we did in parallel, and I'll rapid fire them, but each one are fascinating depending on how much your audience wants these things. They're going to sound kind of defeatist, but the first thing I said is stop uttering best practices at them. Hmm. Like, what are the bad practices? Let's flip, flip this on its head. So we wrote sysa.gov slash bad practices. And we said, these are dangerous. In, in critical infrastructure, these are dangerous. And the lawyers tried to stop me at several different times, and I just wouldn't let let go. And, and they said, but Josh, isn't this common? I said, it is common and dangerous. Our job is to identify risks to critical infrastructure. These are among the top. So from memory, the first, they all have the same sentence structure, but from memory, it was initially two, now it's three. And by the time you air this, it might be four. The use of unsupported end-of-life software in service mm -hmm. of critical infrastructure and national critical functions is dangerous. It materially elevates risks to public safety, economic, and national security. Yeah. This dangerous practice is especially egregious for internet accessible technologies. Boom, right? Yep. Well, when the Microsoft Exchange attacks were happening, the number one market share of exchange on the internet, according to Bob Brutus and his scan from Rapid7, was unsupported exchange. It wasn't an exception. It wasn't a rare edge case. It's the majority. <laughs> you know, most medical devices are running XP or Windows 7, both of which are end of life. Oh, right. Yeah. End of life software should not be end of life for humans. And mm. we're playing fast and loose. Number two is the same sentence structure, but for hard coded fixed maintenance passwords. Yeah. And third one was the use of single factor remote administration tools, which is one day picked after the initial launch. So one is bad, bad practices. I shouldn't have gone that detail. I'm sorry. Number two is we said, let's get your something I teach my students at CMU, but I, I like to say get your stuff off Shodan, but I couldn't say the euphemism for stuff in a federal document. <laughs> I couldn't say Shodan. So we said, get your stuff off search. And there was mm -hmm. a, a series of documents that show you how to use free tools like Shodan, Census.io, Thinkful to see your internet attack surface, see what adversaries yeah. can see. And so you can harden the ones you don't, you know, shut off the ones you don't need, harden the ones you do, but it gives you a, a really free, easy way to see your low hanging fruit for opportunistic attacks. That was a gateway drug, though, because taxpayers already fund cyber hygiene vulnerability scanning nightly. So you get an automated scan and an email of all the vulnerabilities that are remotely accessible. And uh, that's too much. So when we meet them where they are, they're not going to be able to fix all those. So mm -hmm. we also encouraged and accelerated the publication and machine readable formats for what's Kev. And people love Kev, but Kev is the known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. Mm -hmm. So in a given year, less than 3% of CVEs ever get exploited. This Kev list is not even that 3%. It's a subset of the 3%, which are the most commonly exploited known CVEs out there that have affected critical infrastructure. So let's zoom out for a second. You should uh, know what these bad practices are because we were encouraging regulators, insurers, underwriters, credit rating agencies, FTC, SEC, we're encouraging them all to, to make these considered negligent. Couldn't use the word negligent, but this, right. we're trying to define a floor that you could bring to your yeah. board of directors and your investors. Two, we said, here's an easy way to get your stuff off search, but you really should do this on an automated way. We'll do it for free for you. And then since you can't fix everything, at least in this urgent, immediate sense before you budget and hire and train, 
you should probably fix the kevs, the non-exploited vulnerabilities. So this is super defeatist in some ways, right? It doesn't make you safe. And many of these hacks could still happen through phishing or spam mm-hmm. or another vector. But how many disruptions to water, food supply, oil and gas, uh, hospitals, municipalities were opportunistic collections of right. a drive-by for a mass exploitation like exchange? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, right? I mean, it, so it, much. It, VPNs, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Citrix, you, you name it, especially the internet. And I, I really like the kicker and the bad practices, which is especially internet reachable technologies. Absolutely. Oh, by the way, that's not the finish line. That was to get to the starting line. The whole idea is subsequent to doing those minimums, then you crawl, walk, run, and have a, a phased approach that's fit for purpose for your sector. So what's next then? After after they're crawling, what, what's the walk and the run? Well, for those that we designated as those 66 ball bearings, we would send out a CISA regional team mm. and we'd help do a guided tour through a a lightweight pass through like the NIST cybersecurity framework or things like for me, the most obvious ones we did the most often for these, these ball bearings, we called them was we would try to do a very lightweight tabletop crisis simulation to test Mm -hmm. their assumptions. We would sometimes ask a subset of the questions about, is there separation between your OT and your IT, your uh, front office and your cyber physical systems? Because maybe a a compromise of your front office computers wouldn't have an explosion or a plant plant breakdown. To to properly do that is a very long engagement. But we were looking for what can be addressed immediately because we were getting pretty close to scaled production and fill and finish for at least the first emergency authorized use uh, candidates. And um, so we had to time box these things. What can we do right now? Mm-hmm. But the idea was let's do a couple common things for these industrial OTIT splits immediately. But then it was uh, walking through, do you have a backup offline storage restoration or doing a tabletop crisis simulation, a lightweight one, so you can get executive stakeholder engagement and challenge assumptions. But there's so many other things in the system service catalog that instead of just saying, use all of these, the Socratic process of finding out what their current skills, appetites, and demographic were would help them say, do these next, these next, these next. But it, it created a relationship. And often in many cases, as designated critical infrastructure, they get access to free taxpayer-funded hmm. services. It's just they don't know what they mean. Yeah. And heck, I'm, I've been in cyber a long time. <laughs> the, the language CISA uses is yeah. different than the language I would use in the private sector. So. It's not perfect, but some of our other teammates, uh, after my service ended, they've been trying to clean up and streamline how you articulate that crawl and walk and run stage. But ultimately, you do want to get them on a path towards best practices, but it starts with acknowledging bad practices, doing some things that can buy down risk immediately for no money, and then pointing them at fit for purpose advice in the right order instead of just platitudes like implement zero trust or... right. Well, you know, and, and simple things like segregating some of their devices, like even the front office and back office kind of things like Target was hacked through their HVAC system. There were That's ca- right. casinos That's right. that were hacked through, you know, aquarium, digital, you aquarium. know, <laughs> thermometers, right? You know, classic stories of where our cars being hacked through their entertainment system, you know, where you go through that, then you get to the, the critical stuff like brakes and things, right? Well, let's, I know you, we're probably going to pivot, but let's punctuate this on our very first birthday for the cavalry. We wrote the five-star automotive cyber safety framework. So go to iamthecavalry.org slash the number five word star, five star. And it said all systems fail. You should be prepared for failure across these five dimensions. And it was how do you avoid failure, take help avoiding failure without suing the helper, capture study alert from failure, contain and isolate failure and respond against future failure. They have fancier names. 
but that fourth one, there's no separation between infotainment and critical functions of the car. So the, the, the fancy name was, do you separate critical systems from non-critical systems such that a hack of the radio, like Chris and Charlie did, could never shut off the brakes or turn the steering wheel. And right. the answer in almost every car is, nope, there's no segmentation isolation, not logically, not physically. And we wanted to change that. So we weren't just pointing out that we had risks. We were giving practical frameworks for looking at avoiding failure, at least initially. And those became blueprints for like FDA regulations and and like. The other theme I'm picking up here is that we we really need to stop blaming the victims. And I, I think we do that a lot. I think we put a lot of onus on, well, you shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done that. Where in a lot of cases, I think it should have, that should have been possible. How do we, so a lot of the, to me, the shift left is, you know, security by design. And, and some of these products shouldn't be able to fail in the way they often do, or shouldn't be able to be misconfigured in the way they do. What, what do you, what's your take on that? Yeah, within that five-star framework, the the medical version we call the Hippocratic Oath for Connected Medical mm. Devices is the same five things are just worded in the love language and nouns and verbs of those mm-hmm. sectors. But yeah, the first one is safety by design, cyber safety by design. And in it, it's things like, do you do threat modeling? Do you um, look at your supply chain integrity? Like SBOM, I started my SBOM journey the same time I started my cavalry journey. I just didn't link them always. Mm-hmm. Um, but software bill materials like uh, was a growing concern. When you look at like some of these critical infrastructure operators, there's two major categories. There's what's the hackability of the supply chain of goods that they're buying and operating. And then there's how well they own and operate them. Hmm. And it's really difficult, no matter heroism and budget, it's going to defend indefensible things. So I I wanted to apply pressure on both fronts, right? Um, I'm an AppSec product security guy by my day job most of the time prior to this mission, including like chief security officer for a publicly traded company on product stuff, right? I teach it for CMU, but there's no software liability still. There's, there's really no accountability right. for software flaws. Right. And I wanted to raise the hygiene, if not for everything, at least for cyber physical systems that can kill people like a bedside infusion pump. So we did have significant success on medical devices, but not so much on water and wastewater technologies mm. or high-speed rail or these or that. And the cavalry's pushing on all fronts that cyber physical, but we've had varying success over time as we built trust. And the bravest by far was Suzanne Schwartz at uh, FDA by far. She comes to hacker conferences, you know, sends her people to hacker mm-hmm. conferences, collaborates on technical things, on policy things. But we wanted to make sure that hospitals that buy these things have a fighting chance. And if they are flawed, they can be patched. And that the vendors that make them, even though they try to avoid flaws, that they have a courting disclosure program inviting hackers acting in good faith without fear of legal reprisal. And so we had to work a lot on decriminalizing security research with CFA and DMCA and guidance and prosecutorial guidance and, you know, honing best practices for disclosure programs, even if you don't want to bug downy. And so we did a lot of the things to enable this kind of prevent failure stuff. Yeah. But um, ultimately as well, the hospitals or the water and wastewater treatment facilities, they have to avail themselves of these superior technologies and then configure and operate them well and notice when something's acting differently. So the pressure needs to be both on the supply chain for the cyber physical goods in and the safe operations of them for the life of that deployment, which can often be quite long and quite protracted. Well, one of the, one of the things that I seem to recall you recommending was for some of these organizations to shift from on-prem to cloud. <laughs> and, and that is so so that you take the responsibility away from maybe these smaller mom and pop shops or smaller companies that don't have the the skills to 
Azure and Amazon Cloud and companies that have the financial wherewithal, perhaps you could be whipped into shape by the government with some carrots and sticks to to get that right. What is that? My misunderstanding what what your recommendation was? I mean, it's complicated. And in fact, the reason I laughed is there was a senator. I just testified at the Senate in May on the first loss of the life. And one of the senator's questions were trying to pin me into a binary yes or no question on is cloud safer than mm. on cloud. And of course I couldn't, I didn't, I did a good job fending off the, the line of questioning, but I think within a lens of critical infrastructure or cyber poor, let's put it that way. Um, if you can't keep up with the configuration, hardening and maintenance of your own exchange server, you are probably safer with mm. G suite or office 365. If you can't maintain, you know, the, the entire stack of compute, for on-prem equipment, you might be able to avail yourself a lot of the baked-in, built-in, you know, cloud-hosted people who live and die by their success at doing a good job at that. Right. And it's not just that they're better at security, it's that they too are reducing complexity, right? So complexity is your reduction is always better than adding security almost almost every case. Mm-hmm. So people that reduce operational complexity, operational variance. You know, I'm a very big fan of Deming and Toyota supply chains and Eli Goldratt and theory of constraints and all these things we know about engineering outside of software and security. You know, there's very applicable ideas about reducing complexity and operational variance and monitoring. And we just haven't really applied them to IT. And I look at cybersecurity of IT or OT as a, you know, uh, emergent property of IT choices. It always starts with that. In fact, I have a zombie apocalypse pyramid like a food guide pyramid I use for my, my students on where cybersecurity fits in. And it's actually number three and four on the pyramid, not the bottom two layers of the pyramid. And they always chuckle when I do it, but they never forget it. Like I'll have someone who's like a CISO at Walmart come back like 10 years later and say, I remember your zombie pyramid. Cause it's, it's over 10 years old now. I think, <laughs> I think I did it. I think the first time I did it was 2011 at, in public. At first time I did it was 2011 RSA. But mm. if you don't have, a competence and an appetite to maintain the hygiene required, then oftentimes a cloud service is better uh, than you doing it yourself. And and moreover, this is more of a business point, but like you should focus your talent and strategies and and time and budget on the things that only you're good at Mm. and and let someone else do something that they're better at. But it's not to say that you can't get hacked and, and some of these things become all your eggs in fewer baskets. I mean, there was a major managed service provider hacked during my time at CISA that affected every single one of their tenants. Yeah. Right? So there, there's concentration of risk and there's role on your own. And often for these cyber poor that we were helping, it was probably not wise for them to continue running their own unsupported exchange forever. When you were testifying, this and this may have been when you were there for it, I, I know that you were there talking about the Patch Act. And that was something that you <laughs> seemed kind of jazzed about at the time. Um, and it's been long enough now that I'd, I'd forgotten some of the details. So what was... First of all, what, what what was that proposal about, and 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 what do you like about that proposal? And second, you know, as Reagan, I think was the guy you said, you know, the the scariest words I'll ever hear. I'm from the government. I'm here to help, right? So <laughs> you've worked with the government, and a lot of people have that attitude, like you know, don't get the government involved, whatever you do, because they're too slow, they don't do it right, or whatever. But what is the role of regulation and legislation here? Well, these are very different questions. Probably the most important one's the second one, generically, because the patch is if, if you don't like regulation, don't see any role for regulation. <laughs> <laughs> then you won't care about my answer for the first one, but I'll give you, if, if there's healthcare people here, I'll, I'll do a, a thumbnail on patch act, but the, yeah. the broader issue is the second question. The patch act was an attempt to, so the, U, the FDA that I've been praising Suzanne, Dr. Suzanne Schwartz at CDRH center for disease and radiological health. 
She's amazing. She has been using the Food and Drug Administration law, the FDA Act, um, to enforce cybersecurity for pre-market and post-market. So what do you have to do before you can bring a new device to market for the first time? And what do you do for the ongoing care and maintenance through retirement? And mo- if you look at our Hippocratic Oath, it's represented, you know, in one way, shape, or form, and is enhanced continuously through some pre-market things, some post-market things, over time. The Patch Act. Some of the bigger manufacturers often push back and say this is just guidance; it's not binding. So the pre-market and post-market guidance are their current interpretation of the mm-hmm. law. But they, but the, what they say in there is, if you have a superior way to meet the intent, go ahead. Hmm. But Generally speaking, a lot of the device makers don't patch their stuff. They don't update software. They don't avoid unsupported operating systems. They don't want to provide software bill materials like the pre-market's asking for. They don't want to do threat models. So this gave her statutory authority in the law mm-hmm. of the land to, to do that. When you have it in the law, you can also budget against it or appropriate. So mm-hmm. lots of civics lessons here. I'll, I'll streamline <laughs> it. The Patch Act basically was going to give her more authority and the ability to budget to raise the guidance to much more, have more teeth. Okay. And hospitals loved it because a lot of their breaches uh, or a lot of their risk assessments find these things that they want fixed from their device makers. And the device makers say, we're not allowed to patch, which isn't true. Mm. She's clarified that a million times, or we don't have to patch or she Mm. can't make us. So when you do a risk assessment and you see that you have internet facing attack surface with sometimes hard coded passwords or unsupported operating systems that could kill people, you want to shut them down and you can't because there's no teeth here. So it passed the house nearly unanimously. And in the Senate, people lobbied from some of the medical device trade associations lobbied against it really hard. And they said some untrue things and Mm. they spun it. And so during my testimony, I was just saying, they're like, how can we help? How can Congress help? It wasn't about a bill or anything. They were just saying, how bad is cybersecurity? You said that it's killed people. Show us how you got to that conclusion and so we walked them through the data science but I, I just in the in the process of answering a question i said hospitals are dying to get the patch act passed so please have the political will to at least consider their needs and um i'm sure it wasn't perfect uh as in, in language but fda was very and fond of it and most of the hospitals especially victims of ransomware attacks were fond of it but you know there's a lot of money in politics and so what happened since then, I don't know the date you're going to air this, but since then, um, in the Senate version, it was attached to a renewal, a five-year renewal of the user fees for the FDA. And it's just a package of whenever you have good legislative language, it has to have a vehicle. Mm-hmm. So a lot of things go through the National Defense Authorization yeah. Act, which happens every year. It's must-pass legislation for the military. This one was going to go through a vehicle called user fees, which funds a bunch of other stuff. So they successfully kicked it out of the negotiations for user fees. So it's currently has no pathway Mm. to a vote. They, I believe I heard that there were some alternative vehicles that might still get through, but Congress ends its two-year session fairly shortly. If it's not in there already, it's very low likelihood. I had to learn all all about this over my my nine-year journey here. Right. But look, I think your, your more substantive question is a lot of hacker friends they hear government and they just groan. Mm-hmm. They hear legislation like they assume it's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I don't love that default reflexive attitude, and, and I share it. Right, I shared it, and I've, you know, I, I understand how they feel. I felt that way. I found a, a, a different balance. Right, the feel felt found. 
Eli Sugarman was running the Hewlett Foundation's charitable wing and, and, and was funding a lot of cyber stuff. And he had this wonderful line. And I can't remember exactly because we've kind of enhanced it together over time, but it was something like, because he reminded me, like, I think it was charitable foundation invented radar, you know, or sonar or whatever, not radar, sonar or something like that. And he had a bunch of examples of where charitable organizations often do things that benefit society. And he had this incredible line. Let's talk about the public-private partnership, which is a horribly broken model right now. and maybe always will be. But the idea is the private sector is people who act in their own private interest, their own shareholders, their own startup, their own households, income, private goods. Mm-hmm. And there are things that are public goods that everybody needs. Everybody needs. So the private sector is private interests and the public sector is public good and public interests. And the role of government is public. And the role of any company is private. And generally speaking, all the talent and innovation is in the private sector, right? Governments are bureaucratic and slow, and there's lots of cliches. Some of them are true. Some of them are unfair. But we have them because it's supposed to be a tension and a check and a balance, right? Sometimes what's right for the individual is wrong for the country. Mm. And so you want a public-private tension and different optimums. And so the public sector... You know, we got the three branches of government. We could easily easily have a civics lesson. Let me short circuit most of that. Generally speaking, hackers look at any legislation as kill it with fire. It's gonna be it's gonna make things worse, unintended consequences, etc. And I early my career was very much against regulatory stuff. Um, I called PCI the No Child Left Behind Act for Information Security, and I made a lot of enemies because they love PCI. They said this is the best thing we have. It creates Mm -hmm. budgets. I'm like, no, it's static, brittle old solutions to a dynamic evolutionary problem. It's not working and blah, blah, blah. What I came to realize is it's not do you or don't you regulate. It's like saying fire is good or fire is bad. It's like, it's, it's how do you use it? Where do you use it? And is it um, based on static brittle things with unintended consequences or it's, is it based on evergreen principles? And what I realized is something that makes you buy antivirus for your PCI card and data environment when very few of us can rely on antivirus for much any, anymore these days is a bad example of regulation, but something that says, hey, you probably shouldn't have something that's both hackable and not patchable. So be patchable, right? That's evergreen. Mm. Or have coordinated disclosure programs or so that even if you miss something, you can fix it later or, or avoid hard-coded fixed passwords. Like which things are the cyber seat belts, right? We used to have cars with no seat belts and no safety f- features. And the right. automotive industry said, oh my God, you're going to destroy profits. You're going to put us out of business. Right. Well, we did all those things and we're not out of business. Right. Kitchens and restaurants, like we're getting food poisoning and salmonella onto their customers. So we created minimum sanitation codes for commercial restaurants. And they didn't, you can still make profitable and delicious meals, even though you have to buy rat traps and bleach your counters. Right. So when something, when a private decision affects public safety or or human life, we regulate and there is a role for that. So Eli's line that I orphaned is that there are things the the public sector can't do and and that they lack the skills or the expertise, but the private sector won't do. So let me say that again. There are things the public sector can't do, but the private sector won't do. And to that, it falls to altruism and groups like I am the cavalry is what he would say. You know, it's like, uh, the nonprofits, the civil societies, the, the altruists. And I said, well, that's nice as an error handling routine, but it's not a place to live. It can't be a permanent home for these. Maybe what we can do is catch the things that fall through the cracks in philanthropy, but they need to be assigned somewhere. 
And since a private organization has a fiduciary responsibility to drive shareholder value, what's right for the shareholders can be wrong for the country, right? So polluting, putting poison in reservoirs could be good for profits, but bad for the town that lives nearby. Shutting off your pipeline to in an abundance of caution so that you can get billing done and maybe not hurt your OT side because you didn't do enough rehearsals in advance or do separation and segmentation might've been okay for your company, but deny the Eastern seaboard gas for a week. Right. If it was in the winter, it could have been heating oil. So a private good should not trump a public good. These are market failures. These are things like tragedy, the commons. You might've heard that term mm-hmm. when, when everyone acts in their own selfish interest, it hurts the, everybody. It's like overfishing. Right. There's no more yeah. fish. Right. So um, without getting into too much more of a civics lesson, pulling back, Bruce Schneier had a good line early in my time when I went to the, the think tank, the Atlantic Council, and he, he would say it's not legislation or no legislation. It's informed, technically literate legislation or illiterate legislation. And my mm-hmm. attitude when I started the cavalry is they're going to regulate. Let's make sure that we give them a helping hand and a technical voice of reason to make sure that we're focused on evergreen, helpful things instead of static, brittle, unhelpful things. Now, some hackers still think they'll never get it right or it'll get misused or abused. And maybe they're right, but you can't just have this be wild, wild west. Every single part of our society that has the potential to lead to loss of life or public safety concerns, aviation, commercial restaurants, drug manufacturing, food supply, cars, they all have some minimum hygiene requirements or minimum safety requirements. And these are safety issues. Right. All right. So as we wrap up here, you, you've mentioned several things along the way, but let's let's kind of tidy this up. What if if I'm out there and I'm perhaps running one of these companies? I'm a hospital administrator. I'm a uh, I'm working for one of these organizations, a utility company, or whatever. What actually? When I was researching this, I found there are actually lots of organizations, even <laughs> lots of federal organizations that that potentially you might turn to. What? Where do you start? Where Where would you recommend people go to start their journey into this stuff? And how do they reach out for help? So you're not going to like my answer because I think the world's changing. One truism that no one no one likes it when I say it is that our quote best practices that predate the last five years or so, they predate the ransomware revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, they likely aren't anymore. doesn't mean you throw them away. It just means adversaries have evolved, impacts have grown. We need to evolve too. And if, if you're still saying the same things you said before the pandemic, I'm not saying the pandemic caused this, but right. concurrent with the pandemic was this much more aggressive adversary activity on critical infrastructure, the willingness to attack things that used to be off limits and the elevated consequences of harm has generated significant bipartisan political will domestically and internationally and in the White House. So there is a willingness that the harms that have manifested are now catalyzing government public sector action hopefully technically literate and helpful minimum touch government action, but they are definitely triggering government action. So part of the idea here is many of the people when they said, what should we do with our government action? They're, they're trotting out stuff that we know doesn't work because we now have, we had an untested hypothesis because the adversaries didn't show up. The adversaries have shown up. We've tested it. It's not enough. Yeah. So that's, that could lead to nihilism if you said, what do I do right now? And, and I could say, well, don't trust the best practices. That, that's not really what I mean. But I think we have to exercise some real pragmatism here. And one thing that didn't exist until four years ago was CISA. And CISA is still getting its feet underneath them. And I have a lot of criticism. So the agency I work for, past, present, and future, I mean, it's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. 
is the notion is cybersecurity for cyber physical systems is going to require different different practices, you know, bad, good, better, best than traditional enterprise security advice. Mm. So there is a growing body of practical advice. And CIS is supposed to come up with common performance goals across all 16, now 17 critical infrastructure sectors like water, food supply, oil and gas, electricity, you know, healthcare. And the sector specific agencies, or now they're called sector risk management agencies, are supposed to layer on top of that. So you're supposed to get some generic advice from CISA and some free taxpayer funded services if you're mm-hmm. domestic. And then the EPA is supposed to help you if you're in water and wastewater. And HHS is supposed to tell you what else to do mm-hmm. if you're in hospitals or medical technologies. So it's a hand in glove, shared responsibility where CISA is looking with the National Risk Management Center to identify and buy down risk. And what I'm encouraged about, it's not out yet by the time of this airing, but the White House has an incredibly bold national cybersecurity strategy. And in it, they're already telegraphing pieces of it. Yeah. And I've done I've done some table read. It's got it specifically calls out some of the most exposed bottom of mass subsets of that infrastructure. It's talking about water, it's talking about electricity, it's talking about small, medium rural hospitals, and emergency communications and emergency services. So by focus on some of the things that are too critical to fail that underpin basic human needs like water and food and shelter and safety they are directing sprints and action from the sector risk management agencies and CISA to to have practical crawl walk run meet them where they are i'm very proud of how much that target rich cyber poor terminology is permeating Mm. the executive branch and legislative branch it comes up all the time now Mm -hmm. so kudos to wendy and kudos to our team for like seeding catchy terms here but uh (laughs) But that advice is forthcoming. And instead of just saying, do everything or do best practices or do zero trust and just failing to actually buy down risk, we're looking for ways that actually materially reduce risk. And in some cases, that's going to be um, hardening your bad environments. In other cases, we've been even bolder and said, you need a cash for clunkers to buy back and replace really unsupported end of life stuff. Like the most dangerous internet facing technologies have to go. Yeah. So if one of these organizations can't replace their exchange, we wanted to convene at the White House and say, hey, Microsoft, hey, Google, will you subsidize a one-time program to help these critical infrastructure targets modernize their their mail? You know, yeah, Because these are public goods, just like we don't have our own standing armies by the town and the state level. We have federally funded pooled resources for certain things. No one should have to wonder if a cyber attack from Putin or a Russian criminal uh, could shut off the water for a month or more or delay into great hospital care for a month or more. Yeah. These are things we shouldn't mess with. And we unfortunately are. All right. Last question before we go. And it's as always with me, it's a, it's a (laughs) multi-part, but um, after, you know, nine years of doing this, do you find yourself more or less optimistic in what uh like what's next for i'm the cavalry and if i want to get involved if i if i am a technologist or or not if i want to actually get out there and, and and make a difference myself how much you recommend that i do that oh those are too hard to answer um <laughs> so nine years is the cavalry journey but i've been on this oh, sure. only rug, yeah. with rugged and my other career longer i'm really doing a lot of soul searching after my emergency federal service because i sign i'm in some ways, a walking talk contradiction. I, I simultaneously know the growing need for a strong and vibrant public public sector and public, you know, and government partners. And I've treasured the strong government partners I've had to date 
like Leonard Bailey at DOJ or Suzanne Schwartz at FDA. And like when we have, or Langevin in Congress, you know, now that he's not running again, but we've had some incredibly powerful and, and, and incredible and very civically minded public servants that have teamed with us. Right. So I know we need that. And mm-hmm. um, I saw horrible failures and shortcomings and self-defeating behavior that contributed to elective loss of life during my federal emergency service. And I am demoralized mm-hmm. by how, how far we are from current state to desired state, even for the newest federal agency with all the money and permission in the world, there's so much more to do. So I look at the way the world is and I'm, I'm more in some ways more pessimistic than I've ever been. Um, and I'm not a pessimist and, and I know that it takes a refusal to accept the status quo and stubborn people to change the world. And, and many of us are taking the successes and failures from that emergency federal service and we're building upon it. Bad practice is very popular. Target rich cyber poor has shifted from just looking at the richest critical infrastructure operators and big hospitals down to the smallest of them that need the most help. So you can't fix a problem until you know what you have. So, you know, the whole GI Joe thing of knowing is half the battle. I think the silver lining here is we are way behind. The adversaries have set the pace. We're going to have this ransomware scourge for a while and the private sector is not helping much yet on it. There's no money in it. Mm-hmm. The average, the attackers have figured out how to monetize the cyber poor. Defenders have not. So it's currently a free, a feeding frenzy. Yeah. And the government needs to find its legs, but you know, I'm encouraged by the office of the national cyber director and Chris Inglis's new team. I'm encouraged by this bold strategy from the white house. I am discouraged by how much pushback it's getting from the private sector, but this public private partnership has been imbalanced. The public sector has a role to play. And I'd encourage anyone listening that instead of saying what's wrong with their ideas, focus on what's right, help them be more literate. They need to take some action. I think the quote from Chris Inglis last yesterday or the day before is free market forces only take you so far. And there's a role for government power. We yeah. want to use it sparingly, but it's time yeah. to use it. Mm-hmm. So hold your nose, eat your lima beans. Don't say fire bad. Like let's figure out how to use these tools well and assist them and be measured about it for sure. But we're in an interesting and dangerous moment in history. I think we need to figure out that uh, a new public private partnership, and maybe it involves public private and hackers or civil society at least. And uh, not a succinct answer for you, but I'll, I'll, I'll like this. I don't know what the future is for the cavalry every year. I wonder if it's, it's time to end the cavalry. And, you know, when we started, there was no CISA and now there's an entire agency theoretically in the mission space, but they're not to their full fighting force yet. Mm. So each year I say, what's the role of the cavalry going forward? And I encourage you to watch our B-Sides Las Vegas track from this year, because that was the theme of the whole both days. We said we were telling people stuff could be on fire, was flammable. It's on fire now and everybody knows it. So now what? How does the mission change? And we were Socratic about it. We've got some answers, but ultimately we we shouldn't have to exist, right? The idea of meeting people where they are, using empathy, trying to be a, a bridge builder and a coalition builder is always going to be necessary and important. But if you want to get involved, um, I'm the cavalry.org, C-A-V-A-L-R-Y, not Calvary. That's where yeah. they killed Jesus of Nazareth. Um, <laughs> uh, right. But um, whether it's this or some other effort, there's you know CTI League, there's you know DEFCON policies growing in ranks, but we are not just a hobby anymore. There's yeah. the US Digital Service as well. What do you know about that? 
Oh, there's plenty. I mean, these are some of the teammates that we're finding. State Department's trying to do some things abroad as well, because these are not just target-rich cyber poor U.S. critical infrastructure. We're worried about food supply everywhere. We're worried yeah. about connected technology everywhere. And we have participation internationally. Like a lot of our, my favorite members are in Europe or Air Asia. So, uh, so I, I think it's we got to mature though, because we're not just a hobby, and we can't just say we don't want government involvement. I think what we have to do is roll up our sleeves and be good faith partners to give them things that are focused not on what we want, but what the, the the broader society needs. One of the ways I tend to end lots of talks is as the world's increasingly dependent on techn- technology, uh, they're increasingly dependent on you, right? This is not a spectator sport anymore. And a lot of us are jaded or burned out for our enterprise security, but that was always about money and records. Right. This is about public safety, human right. life, your right. own family, your own ability to uh to have the things you need and right now there's we've had too many protracted disruptions i mean jackson mississippi right now it's not because of hacking but it easily could have been yeah in the second month of water not fit for pregnant women and kids to drink i mean this this is this we don't want this to look like a third world country and as we've connected everything to everything else we have exposed ourselves to accidents and adversaries and those adversaries are increasingly willing to disrupt us so we have some catch up to do and we're in a fairly dangerous moment in history but if you if you think someone else is going to fix it for you they won't that's the, the theme of the gallery all along right they're not coming but you know what are you willing and able to do remains the question and if this strikes a, a chord in your heart let's figure out how to work together well, well said, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thanks for everything you've done. You've obviously had been out there doing a lot of great things and been involved in a lot of great projects. Uh, so thanks for doing what you've done. Thank you. I'm really glad we finally got Josh on the show. Uh, I appreciate him coming on. That was a, I think an extremely important discussion. And if you found that at all inspiring, be sure to check out IamTheCalorie.org. Of course, there's a link at the show notes for that. If you want to get plugged in, uh, you can send an email, uh, send an email to info at I am the org. I just did that myself. I want to, you know, kind of see what those guys are up to and see if there's some way I can help out. Another thing you might want to look at if you're in the IT space at all, or even adjacent to that, you might check out Josh's rugged manifesto. It's all about being resilient, being robust, redundancy. Making your code, in this case, though it could be generalized to other things as well, rugged, making it durable, spending the time to make sure that things are done with quality, that you've built in you know, security and privacy from the start so that we could avoid having problems in the first place. There are links to this in the show notes, along with other things, uh, many things we talked about today. Uh, I've got a link to the DEF CON 21 talk nine years ago, where this I am the cavalry thing was sort of announced, I think officially, or maybe that's where, you know, really got kicked off because so many people saw that that's well worth watching. And then uh, he also mentioned the B sides, which is another security conference. There's a talk there of kind of about what's happened in those last nine years, you know, successes and failures and where they need to go. Uh, Links to all that are in the show notes. I also wanted to mention a couple books that you might want to read. First of all, I think a very apropos book here is Click Here to Kill Everybody by Bruce Schneier. I just finished reading that one recently myself. That's a really good book. It's very sobering, of course, Uh, but it's all the different kind of ways that our systems are very dependent now, Uh, and they're all hooked up to the internet, and they're not as secure as they should be, and what some of the consequences may be. So I think that's very much in line with our, our talk today with Josh. 
But I also want to recommend this other fiction book. It's called One Second After. It's actually part of, I think, a trilogy now. I've only read the first one personally. But basically, there's a technological disaster. I don't want to give too much away. But it really kind of brings to light a lot of the things that we take for granted in modern life. Again, it just kind of helps you think about where we have vulnerabilities in our society, you know, that are exposed when we lose access to certain modern conveniences that, well, that we take for granted. I think it's, again, in line with this, and it's, it is a good book. It's, a, it's an entertaining read, and I think it also kind of goes to this whole kind of thought of rugged, ruggedness and being prepared. All right, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, next week will be my best of 2022 show where I've pulled in some of the best snippets of the podcast over the last year. I'm also going to throw in some of the bonus content that I've so far only given to my patrons. After every podcast every week, I've got some bonus content, either extra questions with the guest or for my top patrons. I've also got a thing I've called Merlin's Musings where I just kind of talk about some tech topics or some personal topics. And so just to give you a little taste of that, I'm going to bring in a couple of those into that show as well. So I've got some great shows coming up. Subscribe if you haven't. I'd love to get some more five-star reviews from you guys on Apple Music. That really does help. And if you would, share some of these promotions and things with your friends on social media and, and so forth. Uh, I'm trying to reach more people, and that's kind of why I'm doing these things. So now is a great time to do that. All right, everybody, take care. Until next week, as always, stay safe out there. And don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>